many commentators call Romans chapter 8 really the crescendo of the book of Romans. It's the heart of Christianity. If you want to know what it truly means to be a Christian, if you want to know who we are in Christ, land on Romans chapter 8. Study it and study it again and study it again. Because after I pray, we just take a brief look at it this morning, you will see that life as a follower of Jesus Christ is far better than you even realize. Paul starts with a declaration that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a huge way to open. But then he, that chapter closes with the reality that there is no separation from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are the bookmarks of this monumental chapter. So I pray as we approach it, we would understand that this is the truth that sets us free. Jesus said to the crowds in John chapter 8, he says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Notice he doesn't say your truth. He doesn't say my truth. Pastor John said something at the memorial service yesterday that has really stuck with me over uh, the last 24 hours or so. God's ways are not our ways, and God's thoughts are not our thoughts. But we live in a culture where we are infatuated with our own thoughts. We think very highly about our own opinions, don't we? And you may say, no, we don't. Well, yeah, we do. We blog about them. We post them to Facebook. We're always looking to share our opinions with someone else. But the reality is the only truth there is is the truth of God's word. That's what we should be asking. Not what's my truth or what's your truth or how do you feel about something or what's your perspective on something. The only thing that matters is the truth of God's word and whether or not our thinking and our, the way we see this world aligns with it. Because if our truth is not God's truth, it's not truth at all. And in Romans chapter 8, we see the truth of who we are. Jesus says, the truth shall set you free. Free from what? What do we need freedom from? Well, I've pastored here for 15 years. And I've done a lot of counseling and phone calls and discussions with individuals who are wrestling with sin, struggling with sin. I've also been a sinner for 40 years. So in that time, I've realized that I wrestle with sin and I struggle with sin. And not just sin alone, but I struggle to reconcile who Jesus says that I am with who I see in the mirror every single day. Have you ever felt miserable and discouraged because you knew who you were supposed to be, but you knew who you really were? That's the battle that Paul spoke about in the last chapter. He said, the good that I want to do, I do not do, but the evil I don't want to do, that I practice. That's a struggle, isn't it? And then he says in Romans seven twenty one, I find then a law that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do, is pre present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members or in my body. And then we hear that cry of a prisoner, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the cry of a man who's in chains. 
That's the cry of a man who is in bondage. Who is going to rescue me? Who is going to deliver me? And as Pastor John shared last week, Paul doesn't end there. He answers with this, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the freedom. But how? How does A man who lived 2,000 years ago, dying and rising again three days later, how does that free me from the struggle of sin? What effect does that have for me? Now, if it was just primarily a historical event, how could it? But Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished something in the supernatural realm, if you will. That's reverberated throughout human history. And that's what Romans 8 is all about. Jesus saves. But how? Let me give you some vocabulary review. Here's some words that we've looked at as we've gone through the book of Romans. If you're a note taker, I encourage you to jot these down. It's vital that we understand these three words if we're going to understand Paul's letter to the church in Rome. The first word is one you've heard before, justification. Justification. And I'm going to look at all of these in the light of freedom and deliverance. Paul says, who's going to rescue me? Jesus Christ. How does he rescue us? First, through justification. That means we're delivered from the penalty of sin. That's our position right now in Christ. We are delivered from the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. But in Jesus Christ, we have been given eternal life. So right now, if you've given your life to Christ, you stand free from the penalty of sin of sin. The second word is sanctification. That means we are being delivered from the power of sin. Every day we're learning what it means to stand in that freedom. We're not perfect. As Paul said, I wrestle with this daily. There's a a law in my members warring against the law of my mind. I see God's will as good and perfect, but I find myself falling short of it. But every day, God is working in us and through us to free us from the power of sin. If justification is our position, sanctification is our current condition. I know that I am free from the penalty of death, but right now there are things that God needs to work out in me. There are lies that I still believe. There are thoughts that just don't align with the way that God sees this world, but he is faithful to complete that work that he started in me. And finally, glorification. That means we will be delivered from the presence of sin. There will be a day where sin is no more. And we will stand in the presence of Jesus Christ. And our condition in Christ will align with our position in Christ. They will be one in the same. So when Paul, throughout the New Testament, says that we've been saved or he says that we are being saved, or that we will be saved. That's why he uses those terms. It doesn't mean that we're not saved now when he says one day we will be saved. He is saying we will be saved from sin's presence. But the moment you've given your life to Christ, you are saved from sin's penalty. So keep that in mind as we approach this huge chapter. Chapter 8, verse 1. This is where Paul turns on the fire hose. Because right out off, right off the bat, look at this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
if we weren't moving through the book of Romans and trying to give you the full counsel of God's word, we could land on this verse for a year and not fully teach through all that is there. There is now no condemnation. That's a battle verse, as some say. That's a verse that you set to memory because we feel condemned. We feel ashamed. But what Paul is saying, that word condemnation is the word penalty. It's the Greek word for penalty. It's a, it's a judicial team. So what is he talking about? He is talking about justification. Our standing before God as born again men and women, children of God. We stand before God as forgiven. We are delivered from sin's penalty. Why does Paul keep returning to this? I mean, haven't we exhausted the theme of justification? Here we are in the eighth chapter of Romans, and we're still talking about justification. Why? Because even though we've been set free, how often do we go back into that prison cell and close the door because we think we deserve it? It reminds me, when I was growing up, we used to watch reruns of um, Andy Griffith. And there was that town drunk, what was his name? Otis. He would walk into the prison. He would open, he'd take the key, he knew where the keys were. He'd grab the keys, he'd open the prison cell, he'd open the door, he'd get in, he'd close it, and he'd lock it behind him. Man, doesn't that describe Christians sometimes? Even though we've been set free, we return to that prison cell and we shut the door. For how long? Well, until we're not guilty anymore. Until we feel like we've earned God's favor again. Now, don't get me wrong. Guilt can be healthy, but what we believe about guilt matters. Understand what I'm saying. Conviction, the sweet conviction of the Holy Spirit is not condemnation. It is the loving correction of a father. It is the steering and the guiding of a loving father. It's not condemnation. Imagine this for a second. This may hit too close to home for some, some of you. Imagine you started a college class, and on the first day you realize you are way over your head. And you know day one you're going to fail this class. So you make your way to the teacher after class because usually there's a little bit of a, w a window. If you disenroll in time, you get at least some of your tuition back for that class. So you make your way to the teacher after class and you explain the situation. Hey, this is, this is beyond me. I, I need to be disenrolled from your class. What if the teacher said to you, I understand what you're saying, but let me make you an offer. I'm going to give you an A no matter what. Done deal. You have an automatic A. No matter what you do in this class, you will have an A at the end of it. What would you do with that? You now have the freedom to learn and to grow without the pressure of the outcome. You have the freedom to take in the knowledge and the information without the weight of a passing grade on your shoulders. That is a, a very weak analogy for what God has done through Jesus Christ because that A only costs the teacher going into the computer and typing in A. But what did it cost God? Everything. You guys know what I'm talking about. I know you do, because how do you drive when there's a police officer behind you? <laughs> Versus, have you ever been in a, a memorial service um, what are, a motorcade where the officer is the one leading you? You're like, hey, I'm with that guy. Get out of my way. It's different, right? But the law is what sits behind us and watches us and judges us. But there's no condemnation anymore for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our guilt does not define our position in Christ. Let me repeat this. There is now no condemnation for those 
who are in Christ Jesus. And I, I just felt the burden to share this this morning with all of this talk about abortion. And, and I know what you guys are thinking. Here we go, current events. It doesn't matter. What I'm talking, who I'm talking to this morning are those of you who have been affected by abortion. Women who maybe early in life you've made that decision to terminate a pregnancy. And whenever these issues get brought up, it just rehashes the guilt and the shame. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As an individual who has felt the guilt and the shame of that reality, I need to hear this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a battle verse. But notice there's a condition to it. Now the world doesn't want to hear this part. There's a condition. It's not there's no condemnation for everyone. It's not there's no condemnation for those who are a good person. What's the condition? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? So think about this for a second. The term Christian is rarely used in the New Testament. It's only used three times. Two of those times, it's a derogatory term. But the term in Christ, in some form or another, Paul uses it over 160 times in the New Testament. It, it, it makes me want to start, if someone says, hey, what religion are you? Oh, I'm in Christ. Well, what does that mean? Oh, let me tell you what that means. Because Christian nowadays, what does that even mean? I've met a lot of different Christians, and it doesn't say what it it doesn't mean what they think it means. We are in Christ. So let's take a look at that phrase. What does it mean to be in Christ? And I, I want to encourage you, even beyond this, whenever Pastor John and I te teach, our prayer is that this isn't an exhaustive study of the scripture that we're in, that it is just a taste of what you can experience if you personally dig into God's word and you sit before him. So I encourage all of us, take the time to study that term. What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to be unified with Christ? What does it mean to be joined to Christ? What does it mean to be clothed with Christ? Because all of that is vital to understanding all the promises, all the benefits, all the results of being found in Christ. Charles Spurgeon once said, there is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. No saving good, no eternal good, no God-exalting good, no soul-satisfying good comes to us except as we are connected to Christ. See, these ideas of justification and sanctification and glorification, the reasons they apply to us is because we are found in Jesus Christ. Martin Luther once wrote, but so far as, as, far as justification is concerned, Christ and I must be so closely attached that he lives in me and I in him. Because he lives in me, whatever grace, righteousness, life, peace, and salvation there is in me is all Christ's. Nevertheless, it is mine as well by the cementing and attachment that are through faith by which we become as one body in the spirit. What are these men of the faith saying? To be one in Christ is to be attached to him. How does Jesus describe being one with him? Study John 15. He says, I am the vine, 
you are the branches. If we're cut off from the vine, we die. But again, when we confessed faith in Jesus Christ, that work of his death and resurrection did something supernatural. When we confessed faith in Jesus Christ, we were joined to him. I don't fully understand it, but it brings me great comfort that Christ dwells in me and I dwell in him. And because of that, I have become a new creation. Let me just throw rapid fire for a moment. You can write these down and go back and take a look at it. Let me give you just some truths that come from being in Christ and how that was accomplished. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30, this is from the NIV. It is because of him that is God. This is a work of God. This isn't a work of us. This isn't a work of the flesh. This is the work of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption, all of that is because God has placed us in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.3, again from the NIV, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What do you mean we died? What has Paul been preaching through the book of Romans? You have died to the law. You are sharing in Christ's death so that you may share in his resurrection. And because you've died to the law, your life is now hidden with Christ. We're talking about our standing right now. This is who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die. So before we came to know Christ, who were we in? Adam. Meaning we were linked to his sin and his rebellion and his disobedience and his consequences for those sins. Even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. So just two more for you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what are they? A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And then Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, I'm just trying to whet your appetite so that you will take this and you, because we got to move on, but the significance of being in Christ cannot be understated. The fact that we're joined to him, that we're clothed in him, that is how we have access to his righteousness. And that's how we can stand before a perfectly righteous God and go boldly before his throne because of that reality. Look at verse 2. For, simple three-letter word there, for. You might want to underline it because Paul has a lot of fours in the next coming verses. And another way to translate it would be because. And they're all evidences and promises and benefits of being in Christ. And he starts by saying, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that I was weak, or it was weak, through the flesh, God did, God did, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, and the righteous requirement of the law, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according 
to the Spirit. So again, Paul's restating really what he said in Romans 6, 18. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And Romans 6, 22, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Here's the theme here. In Christ, we are free. In Christ, we are free. We are free from the law, and we're learning to be free from the power of sin. But learning to walk can be hard, especially when we've spent our whole lives walking as slaves to sin. But now we have a new master, a good father, and he's teaching us to walk in this new nature now remember, sanctification is, is being set free from the power of sin. We have been given the ability to walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this is a who we are statement. The, the title of this morning's teaching was Becoming Who We Are. So when we read that the righteous require requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit we may read this and think oh man i don't walk according to the spirit most of the time i find myself walking according to the flesh does that mean i'm not a son or daughter of god this isn't necessarily a prescription here we'll get to the prescription don't get me wrong and, and I would encourage you, if you've never had a desire for the things of God, you've never desired to walk in His ways, you've never felt that draw to change and become more like Christ, you might want to examine what it means to become born again. But if that war, that struggle is taking place inside of you, understand what Paul is saying here is this is who you are. This is not a prescription. This is a description of who you are. You now walk in the Spirit. You've been made new. See, when you were under the law, the law did not have the power to enable you to walk in the Spirit. What the law could not do, he said. Why couldn't the law do it? He said the law was weak. But why was the law weak? Because you and I are weak. The law in and of itself wasn't weak, but because we are unable to follow the law, that made the law weak. But here's the best part about this. Again, take those pens out. What the law could not do, God did. If there was a subtitle to my Bible, it would say Holy Bible. God did. God did. What we were, were a, unable to do in our flesh, God did. And he did it by sending his own son. And his own son looked like us. Well, he wasn't like us in the sense that he sinned, but he was sure tempted to sin. And he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. And he condemned that sin so that we would not be condemned. He sent his own son and Jesus took on our sins and with them the penalty of our sins. And he nailed our sins and the consequences of those sins to the cross with his own wrists and his feet. And he took them to the grave with him. And then he rose again. So Jesus was condemned so there would be no condemnation for us. What do you mean we can't surrender? Why not? Look at all that he's done. Look at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, for to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. 
for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So again, guys, this isn't a prescription, it's a description. This is the mind before Christ. This is the nature of our mind before we are joined with Christ. Being in Christ doesn't just change the way we walk, it changes the way we think. It gives us the ability in that new nature that we've been given to think the way that God thinks. Before we knew Christ, it wasn't possible. I'll tell you what, and how many of you can attest to this, the moment I got saved, my thoughts began to change. And I began thinking things that I had never thought before. And I began to understand things, some of them very painful, but I needed to see them that I had never considered before. I began to see the pain and the hurt I was causing those that loved me the most. And I was blind to all of that before I was found in Christ. Before I was found in Christ, my mind was dead. You know, there's a lot of talk today about why are we the way we are? What makes us the way we are? Our personalities, the things we desire, the things we're interested in. And the argument is usually two arguments, right? It's either nature or nurture. It's either I am who I am because of my DNA and my hard wiring and my genetics. I'm an alcoholic because it's part of my genetics. I'm list whatever vice you can think of, I am addicted to gambling because of my genetics, or I'm hard-headed because of my genetics, or whatever you can fill in the blank, it's because of all the stardust um, that has come down and somehow involved in, evolved into to me. Blame it on the stardust. If you don't know what I'm talking about, good. That, that's what... Uh, Carl Sagan would tell us. We're a product of the stars. I am who I am because of my DNA, my hardwiring. The other argument is nurture. I'm a product of my past. I am who I am because of mom and dad. I am who I am because of grandpa and grandma. I am who I am. And it gets even deeper. I am who I am because of the experiences of my ancestors passed down through generations. So I am who I am because of hardwiring or I am who I am because of my past. Let me give you a, a third option. I am who I am because of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying there isn't any validity in nature and nurture, but there's a third option. And he breaks the sins of the past. And he breaks those proclivities that we're attractive, attracted to. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am who I am because of Jesus Christ. So again, guys, these are battle verses. We can say it all day long until we're blue in the face, but until we start understanding who we are in Christ, our, we, don't, we don't change. Do we believe this? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and I am a new creation because I am in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 9. But you are not. <laughs> this is a pretty bold statement. Again, it's a description of who we are. You are not in the flesh. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, meaning we're all dying, right? Our bodies are breaking down. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's what it means to be joined to Christ. The power that raised Jesus from the dead will one day raise us into the presence of God Almighty. Give life to our mortal bodies. You are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. See the spiritual mind is concerned about the things of God. You know, I, get, I get this call every once in a while from a young man. Hey I'm struggling and I'm embarrassed to say this. I'm struggling with pornography. And I think they're a little surprised by my response. Good. Wait what? What do you mean good? Dead men don't struggle. You're struggling with sin. Be encouraged. The Holy Spirit is working in you. It's a sign of spiritual life. Corpses don't struggle. They just get dragged. Hebrews 12, verse 3. This is again from the NIV. Consider him, the author writes, consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Don't give up. Don't give in. That struggle means you're spiritually alive, but let me remind you, you don't have to walk in the flesh. And this is... Look at Paul's encouragement in Romans 8, 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. We do owe somebody, but it's not our flesh. We don't owe our flesh anything. You are debtors, brethren, but not to the flesh. Let me ask you a question. What has your flesh ever done for you? When you've given into it, when you've given into those desires that are opposed to God's will, what has your flesh ever done for you? Momentary gratification and then a lifetime of pain? Broken relationships? I mean, guys, I know we can go to the extremes with sin, but just wrong thinking, bitterness, setting our mind on social media and the news cycle and finding our love for the lost growing cold and just getting bitter with this world. As we scroll through our feed and get that momentary dopamine hit. What's our flesh ever done for us? It's brought death and destruction and I'm not being dramatic because I've felt it. It's caused pain and it's caused heartache. So why do we listen to it? Why do we act like we owe it something? Why do we give it a voice in our lives Brethren, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is sanctification. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Guys, that old man may still make demands, but we don't owe him anything. We are debtors to Jesus because he's given us absolutely everything. These are the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? Again, we're not talking about just men here. Sons of God are the children of God. Who are the children of God? Those who are what? Led by the Spirit. Again, it's a description here. Once we become born again, we're given a new nature we're being led. We don't always follow, but something new is leading us. Our flesh isn't leading us anymore. Although it may feel that way, the Spirit of God is now guiding us in a way that it was not before. The only thing the Spirit of God does in the life of an unbeliever is call them to Christ. Right? But when you give your life to Christ, the Spirit indwells within you. 
So let, let me, I have to land on this again. And we're not going to get through this this morning. I mean, with communion and all the announcements, we had to break this up into two studies. But let me, let me ask, ask this. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Does it mean we're walking down the street and God says, jump up and down three times? And so we do it. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? I mean, a, a lot of Christians would say, yeah, it's, it's that moment by moment, turn left, turn right, you know. Do, and, and I'm not saying God doesn't speak that way. He does. But again, let's think about this in a biblical sense. Galatians 5, 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. There's that war again. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So there's a spirit leading us. There's the old man saying, you owe me something. But he's like a creditor that you don't owe anything to, and you hang up on him. I remember getting a letter, Aaron can attest to this, we got a letter from our HOA telling us we are being fined because we left our boat in the parking lot or in the driveway. And so I called and I said, if you buy me a boat, I will pay this fine. But when you get that letter and you realize, no, I don't owe you anything because I've never owned a boat before, it's kind of freeing, isn't it? That's how we got to hear that old man. We don't owe him anything. But when the Spirit leads us, yes, we owe you everything. And you're leading me into life and goodness. But again, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Again, Paul says you are not under the law. You're being led by the Spirit. And then he goes on in Galatians and just talks about all the, the depravity that's in man if we live in the flesh. But then he says this is what it means to be led by the Spirit. Look at verse 22. If we want to know what being led by the Spirit looks like, the fruit of the Spirit is, you guys know this, stellar worship music, right? Charismatic teaching, signs and wonders, having that molar that was pulled out 15 years ago, it grows back, right? God blessing your business. Is that the fruit of the Spirit? It's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, if we live in the Spirit, let's also walk in the Spirit. Meaning, if you are in Christ, let's act like it. Let's let our condition reflect our position. Walking in, a spirit, in the Spirit isn't just these momentary, miraculous moments. And I'm not saying those don't happen. Sometimes God says, go pray for this individual. And we do, and they start weeping because they were waiting for someone to reach out. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but let's not think that it's only that. It is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment walking in Christ. His love and His joy and His peace and His patience in his kindness, and his gentleness, and his self-control. Let's not elevate the momentary supernatural acts or elevate a particular gifting like healing or teaching or worship. We should elevate godly character. The moms and the dads that wake up every morning and go to work to provide for their kids and then come home and do the best that they can to give their kids a safe place where they know that they are loved that faithfulness, faithfulness in the mundane things of life, the ability to say, I'm sorry, when you've been hurt. Guys, that's more powerful than any rock concert with a spiritual stamp on it. What does Paul tell us the greatest gift is? 
It's love. Self-sacrificial, biblical love. So Paul says, throw off that old man. You owe him nothing. And walk in the spirit. All right, let's look at verse 15 here. For you did not receive, I love this. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption or sonship by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. You know that term Abba. It's a term of endearment. It's, the, it's a term that a child would use when he sees his dad walk in the door. Dad, daddy. Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So, here it is. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. So, think about this. God doesn't give us a spirit of slavery again to fear. God could have. God could have been a kind of God where he said, okay, you have served the flesh, and it was a back-breaking master. Well, I'm no different. I make demands that I can make. I mean, people go from one master to another, and both masters are evil, right? If you go from a drug addiction to a work addiction, both of those masters are wicked masters, right? So this idea that, okay, we, we're in bondage to fear, just because we have a new master doesn't necessarily mean that's a good master. So what kind of master is God? He calls us, our son, he calls us sons and daughters. That's the kind of master he is. He brings us into his family, he sits us at his table, and he calls us sons and daughters. And our spirit bears witness with his spirit that we are children of God. What does that mean? Because we cry out, Abba, Father. Think about this. Children, when they're scared, who do they look for? I remember I was at a flea market in Pennsylvania with my parents. I was like 17. No, I'm just kidding. I was like four, four years old. And I, they were with me one moment, and I looked around, and they were gone. And my first thought wasn't, where's my sister? My first thought wasn't, where's a policeman? My first thought wasn't anything but where's mom and dad? And you cry out for mom and dad. Do you want to know whether or not you're born again? When you're scared, who do you cry out for? When you're hopeless, who do you cry out for? When, when you've exhausted all of your fleshly uh, options, who do you ultimately cry out for? God, I need you. And what an amazing reality that is. They know in early childhood development that the most important thing for a young child is to have a home where they know they're safe and secure. Without that, doesn't matter how good the teachers are, they're not going to hear it for the most part. It is essential for young children to have a safe and secure home first and then all of their growth all of their flourishing comes from that foundation. And uh, who are we? Who are we? We are men and women who are safe in the arms of our Father. From there we can grow. We don't have a spirit, spirit of bondage to fear because who, again, let me, I'm sorry, I, I, I hate to carry this out a little bit more, but who do you think are the most fearful in our society today? And it plays out in really dangerous ways. When you don't have anyone to look up to, you don't have anyone protecting you, you don't have anyone looking out for you, 
Who are the most dangerous individuals in our society today? And I'm not saying this is you. Some of you have grown up in fatherless homes, but God's been your father. But you look at the confusion of young men who grow up without a dad. And don't get me wrong, there are single moms that are doing everything they possibly can. But usually that single mom is going to work. And there's these young men without dads. And what do we do? We overcompensate when we're afraid. So we're trying to be something that we're not. And if, that, if that's you, if that's you, there is a good father waiting for you. And there's safety and security and protection in him. Because there's no fear in love. In fact, perfect love casts out all fear. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ. But did you guys catch that word? This was all fun and games, right? We are in Christ, there's no condemnation. We have a good father that we can cry out to. We're joint heirs with Christ. And do you know what Jesus is an heir of? Hebrews 1 tells us he's an heir of all things. And we're joint heirs with him. And we'll get into that more next week. But there's something that kind of took a left turn on us. If indeed we suffer with him. So we'll just leave that there. We'll get back to that next week.